The Russian Orthodox Church, is it simply a religious and spiritual organisation? Is it a political movement? Is it a commercial gig? Well, it's complicated. Hello, I'm Mark Galliotti, and welcome to my view of Russia in Moscow's shadows. This podcast, of varying length, frequency and format, yet always reassuringly low production values, is supported by generous and perspicacious patrons, who also receive extra perks and bonuses appropriate to their tier. If you'd like to join them, just head on to patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows. But now, on with today's programme. A couple of weeks ago, there was a tragic, though fortunately rare, school shooting in Kazan, in which a clearly disturbed young man killed nine children and adults. As you'd expect, it prompted all kinds of responses from calls for tighter gun control to laments about the desensitising effect of video games. But let no tragedy go to waste, though. Patriarch Kirill, Metropolitan of Moscow and all the Russias, knows why it happened. Not enough God. To avoid repetition, students need more religious education and, and bishops should be going into schools. Meanwhile, Alexander Shipkov, who's the first deputy chair of the Synodal Department for Relations between the Russian Orthodox Church and the public and the media, there's a title for you, has the answer to so-called Russophobia on the internet, what he called, quote, the huge stream of lies on social networks about our state, our history, our church, global elites, oh, those pesky, pesky global elites. Anyway, global elites are establishing their own censorship upon our territory. So what's his answer to this informational occupation, as he put it, which is intended to make Russians hate themselves? Blocking external sources of information, and instead using the internet to indoctrinate Russians in a new national identity. But don't worry, the church is ready to help the Kremlin formulate it. Suddenly, the Russian Orthodox Church seems to be looking like a lot of answers in search of some good questions. Why is it seeming to be desperate to present itself as the solution to all Russia's woes? Now, arguably, this is because it knows that some bumpy times are ahead, and it wants to make sure it is inside the Kremlin walls when the gates are closed. After all, it has become, to a very large degree, dependent on the goodwill of that Kremlin. Back in 2019, I wrote an article for the Dutch website Ramop Rusland, Window on Russia. And in it, I, not it has to be said entirely seriously, proposed that the Russian Orthodox Church should really be rebranded as FGUP Rosbog. What? An FGUP is a federal state unitary enterprise, which is a quite distinctive structure established for key combines working on the boundaries of the state and business. And generally, it's the commercial arm of a state body, like uh, Pochtarasi, Russian Post, Atom Flot, which operates the country's nuclear icebreakers, and Okhrana, which is the National Guard's private security provider. And Rosbog? Well, when Rosatom builds nuclear reactors, and Roscosmos launches space rockets, and Rostelecom, well, does telecoms, it's time for Rosbog, Russian God. Okay, I'm not being serious. But the Russian Orthodox Church has long had a close, even symbiotic relationship with power. Even during Soviet times, after all, the boundaries between secular and spiritual authority were blurred almost to invisibility, frankly. 
And Vladimir Putin's regime has certainly continued this traditional alliance between church and Kremlin. However, when you add business to, well, let's call it a trinity, um, this is very definitely a, a post-Soviet development, and one actually that, in fairness, predates Putin. Certainly, the church and its grandees have done very, very well out of this alliance in material terms. I remember back in 2012, there was this huge scandal when a photo surfaced of Patriarch Kirill, who'd actually, this was actually taken in 2009, who was wearing a $30,000 Breguet watch. Now, to make things worse, the official photo had actually been retouched to disappear the watch. But the holy photoshoppers forgot also to doctor the reflection on the shiny table at which the patriarch was sitting. It's a miracle, the holy ghost of a watch worth more than three years annual salary for your average Russian. As you can imagine, that didn't play well, especially when it became clear that in fact he had a whole stable of expensive foreign watches. However, you know, moving away from just uh, the, the trivial enrichment of individuals, although obviously it's not trivial in the sense of it's part of a massive wider problem, but more broadly, I would say that by allowing the church to, in effect, become another state-controlled enterprise, somewhere between a media conglomerate and a holding company, arguably it also risks both losing its moral mandate, but also alienating the very power structure to which it has sold itself, if it cannot continue to deliver. Of course, let's start with the history. Where else would I want to start? Go back, fall of Constantinople to Mehmet II Ottomans in 1453, as I recall, left the Russian church claiming to be the last true bastion of Orthodox Christendom, with Moscow becoming the third Rome. The first Rome had been sacked by barbarians and then become home to Catholic popes. And Constantinople, Byzantium was, was the second one. Now, this coincided with a massive state-building project. Um, the aspirations of the Muscovite princes beginning to take you know, real form, and especially under Ivan IV, Ivan the Terrible, though, of course, uh, he's, he's Ivan the Awesome. Um, anyway, he had first called himself Tsar, Emperor. Uh, that was in 1547. And the significance of that should not be underplayed. A prince is a prince. He is a mighty secular ruler. A czar, though, is an emperor and an emperor under God. And certainly Ivan enthusiastically took upon himself the roles of both master and guardian of the church. And the church, in turn, not only gained all kinds of privileges and protection for itself, it basically began to feel that it had a genuine duty to support Moscow as the last bastion of orthodoxy. The idea being that if the third Rome also felt fell, then you know basically that's it, game over for orthodoxy. Now this close relationship in which the church was often, frankly, not much more than the spiritual cheerleader of the crown, lasted through to, to 1917. Obviously, first the collapse of the, the Tsarist regime, and then the seizure of power by the Bolsheviks, and not surprisingly, Lenin and Co. treated the priests as being their enemies certainly as much as the aristocrats. Um, there's that classic cartoon of Lenin with a broom standing atop the globe, sweeping away the capitalists, the aristocrats and the priests, all, all in one swoop of 
the brush. Marxism-Leninism, in many ways, though, just simply became the new legitimating faith. And especially after Lenin's death, when it would all become fossilised into dogma and the real power of the the party was in some ways to be able to interpret the scriptures and you could make the scriptures, as all scriptures can be, read almost anything you want. However, when, of course, Axis forces crushed across the Soviet border in 1941, Stalin looked desperately for any sources of legitimacy that he could possibly find. And amongst the resources at his disposal, of course, this included not just Russian nationalism, which suddenly sort of acquired a, a, a new lease of life, but also orthodoxy. Churches were opened up again. Priests were actually released from labour camps. And suddenly religion was once again acceptable. Obviously, only up to a point and only under state control. I mean, there were absolutely convinced believers, and many of them were very brave champions afterwards of human rights and religious freedoms within the church, including dissident priests such as Glebia Kunin and uh, Alexander Mien. However, they were very much the outliers in what very quickly had become really an offshoot, not just of the state, but of one particular element of the state. And there was this, the bitter joke in the post-war USSR was, after all, Every bishop was a KGB colonel. In fairness, they weren't all, but some were. And every metropolitan aspired to be a general. They didn't all, but some might. When the Soviet Union collapsed, though, the church experienced an extraordinary resurgence. Now, in part, this was understandable because of the, shall I say, the anime, the the, the lack of groundedness, the rootlessness that particularly the Russian people felt when we discover that basically pretty much everything that you've been inculcated to believe was based on lies, myths and murders. So there was this extraordinary spiritual and ideological void left by the collapse of the communist experiment. And also the church's resurgence was thanks to direct support from Boris Yeltsin's government, which again saw in this a very useful alliance. There was a big restitution programme which saw churches and all kinds of other properties return to... Um, its control. Uh, the church established its own businesses, often with extraordinarily generous tax breaks. So it started getting involved in things that had no real relevance to church, except that obviously they made money. And once again, you know, the, the institution began operating freely across the country. It's obviously, though, more under Vladimir Putin, and especially Metropolitan Kirill, who was elected in 2009, that the Kremlin Church Alliance really has been the most striking. Kirill absolutely and full-throatedly endorses the key lines of Putin policy. I mean, he was right behind the 2014 annexation of Crimea. Uh, He condemned the alleged persecution of Russian speakers in the Donbass, which is, after all, one of the key excuses for the Russian intervention, adventure, call it what you will there. Indeed, he also, you know, found that uh, he was had no problem at all with religious themes being very, very heavily used in the early years of the Donbass War to uh, try and attract and motivate volunteers. You know, a lot of them, after all, were, were Cossacks and others who literally fought under the cross. Um, and also as a way of trying to raise money from, from the public, frankly a rather sceptical public, but nonetheless they had a go. Um, in order to provide funds to to support the, the various sort of mercenaries and uh, volunteers there. And this helps explain 
why in 2019, January 2019, the Orthodox Church of Ukraine you know, formally finally removed itself from Moscow's authority, which, as you can imagine, did not go down well. Just last week, Metropolitan Hilarion Novolokolamsk, who's head of the Moscow Patriarchate's Department for External Church Relations, you know, why shouldn't a church have its own foreign ministry? Anyway, Hilarion called the Ukrainian church, again, quote, from beginning to end, a political project of the United States. This was created by the Americans, I mean, come on, who else? To re-embody the principle of divide and rule. Strong stuff, but again, frankly, the kind of stuff one could just as easily hear from the Foreign Ministry or the Security Council Secretariat. Overall, it has taken over the role, not just of state church, but a sort of veritable religious conglomerate, as well as all the churches, the monasteries, the seminaries, and the other religious institutions. The church operates factories providing religious goods that are in turn recommended to worshippers to buy. Pyramid scheme? Of course not. Um, in 2007, it set up the TV channel Spass, um, which is actually, I mean, in some ways, almost funny to watch on that kind of, you know, dividing line between painful enough to be funny and just painful. Lots of it is kind of earnest discussions where, you know, a presenter or a priest asks a more senior priest thoughts on the issues of the day and just nods seriously in, in approval. Um, this, this, is not, this is not the kind of high-octane Pirvi Canal TV works. Anyway, so there's this bus. Um, the church is also part owner of an advertising agency. Um, this is hardly, though, the limits, though, of its, its business empire. What I found quite funny was that um, it actually is a co-founder of BMW Rusland, so it actually traded in BMW cars. It, uh, well, it owns and runs hotels in Moscow. Again, now, in fairness, I mean, some of these are precisely used for visiting delegations and so forth, but, you know, it goes well beyond that. Uh, and certainly the, the computer centre that runs in Novokuznetsk, it's harder to really kind of connect it to religious activities. And the church even used to own a granite quarry. Beyond that, though, it receives direct support from the government, as well as that, I mean, there's, there's private donors. It's become almost a fashionable way of demonstrating your loyalty, not specifically to the Kremlin, usually, but to, shall we say, the kind of the wider ideological project of Putin's sort of nationalist, make Russia great again type thing, that you, you endow money to build yet another church. Because after all, that's what Russia is really lacking at the moment. Um, or similar things, or just simply give money to the church. I mean, the, the, these are ways exactly of just demonstrating your your credentials and also winning you a degree of social cachet. Um, so, you know, this is, and, and beyond that, it's also a way of demonstrating affluence. This is the sort of, the way in which you show that you have made it is that you can build a, a, a chapel or, or something like that. So, it's hard to be known to know exactly how much money it gets. I mean, I haven't come across any later data. I'm sure it exists, and if any readers, readers, what am I saying, readers, listeners, um, know more up-to-date data, you know, I, I, I'd be fascinated to hear it. But certainly back in 2014, official figures showed that it was earning 5.6 billion rubles, which was then worth about $93 million, just in revenues from services, sales, and donations. And best of all... It's all untaxed. Praise be. It's good to be in with the Kremlin.
Now, in the process, it's often very hard to know quite where and when matters spiritual end and those which are essentially commercial begin. It also very much confuses the relationship of church and state. Because after all, even while professing his loyalty to Putin personally, um, Kirill several times described him as a miracle of God, as well as obviously the policies of the government, the church clearly has its own interests, which it will absolutely assert and defend. And it's not just simply about keeping those nice tax breaks. I mean, if one looks, for example, back in 2012, if you remember the Pussy Riot case, where, you know, a collection of punk rock, I hesitate to call them musicians. I mean, they, they, they have had some, some, some better uh, tunes since. But anyway, uh, artistic performers performed a distinctly, let's be honest, uh, willfully uh, blasphemous uh, number in great big church of Christ Redeemer in Moscow. Now, when that happened, the authorities actually were planning on being, frankly, pretty lenient. They were going to just sort of patronise them as, as you know, silly little girls looking for some publicity and and give them a sort of a, a fairly trivial uh, sentence for disturbing the peace. But, oh, no, no, the church was outraged. The church was angry. And the church wanted to show that it still had muscle. Because it's important. It's, it's all very well having influence with the Kremlin. But you have to, from time to time, be able to display that influence. Otherwise, other people won't know you have it, and therefore you won't be able to trade upon it. And this is, after all, one of the most bankable political currencies in, in Russia. So Kirill absolutely pushed for something much more draconian, and they're eventually charged with aggravated hooliganism, which is more serious, actually, than, than it sounds. And, of course, in the process, I mean, yes, of course, Kirill got his way. But on the other hand, Pussy Riot were absolutely elevated to, if I can use the word, icons of freedom of expression and this clash between you know, a new generation of Russians pushing the boundaries and frowsty old men with big beards who, who didn't like that. In many ways, I would say that was, an, in practical terms, a mistake. But I suspect from Kirill's point of view, it was a success. I say that influence is bankable, and obviously that's also a, a financial thing. Because in many ways, after all, as I say, the, the church operates like an F. Gilpe. And F. Gilpe Rosbog would certainly be uh, a worthy addition to the commercial pantheon, you know, especially because this mingling of, of business and governance, of ideology and pragmatism, is by no means um, that unusual within the, the Russian adhocracy. I mean, as I've discussed in a previous podcast, Rosgvardia, the Russian National Guard, is not just an instrument of political coercion, it is also a business empire, you know, and, and, and so it goes. And like most corporations, Rosbog maintains a whole variety of relationships of its own, distinct from its vertical ones with the Kremlin. You know, it interacts with all kinds of different powerful figures within the system, and indeed powerful institutions. Particularly, I would note, the Defence Ministry. Defence Minister Sergei Shoigu very quickly demonstrated his willingness to work with the church. And just as we've seen footage of priests blessing missiles and learning how to drive armoured vehicles and uh, a new campaign to have chaplains, in fairness, not purely Russian Orthodox, but also 
Muslim, Jewish, and other, but primarily Russian Orthodox. Anyway, chaplains w- within within the military. We've also seen signs of, 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 of things going the other way, of the defence ministry extending its patronage to the church. It's an interesting sign of where Rosbog sort of fits into the hierarchy, that despite the fact that it actually had certain misgivings, it had to throw its weight behind uh, Shoigu's very grandiose project to build the main cathedral of the Russian armed forces at the Park Patriot military exhibition centre outside Moscow. And this, the the country's third tallest cathedral, opened in 2020 for the 75th anniversary of the Great Patriotic War. Again, trying to symbolise this fusion of military, nationalist and religious traditions. And I must admit, I I, I have yet to to get to it for obvious reasons. And I am so looking forward to going. It looks like such a glorious expression of tacky grandiosity. I mean, it, it, it is a khaki cathedral. Literally a khaki cathedral, and in, inside, I mean, you know, I mean, let's be honest, it does look very, very impressive, um, but in that thoroughly, thoroughly over the top way that, that Russian Orthodoxy can. Um, again, I, I kind of even even while at the times I feel God, this is too much. There is another part of me that just loves it to bits. Anyway, that's 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 a field trip for another day. Now. Shoigu was very successful in lining up a lot of donors for the project, um, including Putin himself, who actually reportedly funded the the main icon, as well as oligarchs like uh, Alisher Usmanov, major corporations like Gazprom Bank and and Lukoil. And this, obviously, on one level, one could think of it as a great expression of the genuine faith of these individuals. Mm, I'm not so sure about that, though. It's more actually about Shoigu's own personal political cachet and the Defence Ministry's capacity to wield its own strength and its capacity also to leverage the authority of the Church. So, whether because it's forced to or because it chooses to, Rosbog does have all this sort of intangible authority that is part of its, its bankable assets. And institutions from the Interior Ministry that has, of course, its own church-building programme to local authorities, which often turn to the church to support their own initiatives. Um, you know, all, all of this shows the extent to which it is you know, thoroughly, deeply enmeshed within the sometimes visible, sometimes invisible networks of power within Russia. And, of course, this is something that it it can use. It can draw on a whole variety of prominent figures, especially oligarchs and minigarchs, professing their faith. And it can use them sometimes for for gathering information, which, again, is is a currency in this system. But more often, donations or other forms of leverage. Take, for example, uh, former Russian railways chief Vladimir Yakunin. Um, Again, uh, a noted church builder. Konstantin Malofeyev, the genuinely pious owner of Tsagrad TV, which again is a very sort of nationalist and also religious-oriented TV channel, and the, he's also the self-professed backer of the Crimean coup. Uh, copper magnate Igor Altushkin. Uh, no, there's a host of others who are actually closely linked to the church, and again, they gain and they give. There, there is an economy at work. More broadly, the church can also tap into what we could call not just ideological patriotic nationalism, but a rising and frankly rather unpleasant tide of what I'm calling biological nationalism. At the moment, for example, Patriarch Kirill is urging lawmakers to ban Russian women from being surrogate mothers 
to foreigners, specifically to foreigners, calling it slavery and telling Duma deputies that this measure was a sort of moral duty. Yeah, it's, again, a particular ugly form of biozenophobia that really has been given free reign in Russian public discourse since the, the 2012 Dima Yakovlev law, which, an extraordinary case, it was a re- retaliation against the US Magnitsky law, which allowed the, the, government, the American government to sanction officials involved in human rights abuses. And this retaliatory law in the Russian parliament, amongst other things, decided to punish America by, of all things, banning Americans from adopting Russian children. Now, the, the eponymous case uh, is of, of a Russian boy who was adopted by a US family and, and died of heat stroke after being left in a parked car for, I think it was nine hours. But this turned a genuine tragedy into some into an excuse for some geopolitical spite. And the church was right behind that one too. So Rosbog is more than just an arm of the state, or perhaps it may be an arm of the state, but that arm also has fingers in all sorts of, of pies, economic and other. However, I want to sort of bring this to a close by thinking about the ways that this close affiliation with both the Kremlin and the elites risks becoming a liability. And in some ways, maybe, as I say, is driving this new campaign to suddenly seem to be the answer to whatever the challenge of the day may be. Although obviously eclipsed more recently by the sort of overtly political protests over the treatment of Navalny, and also before then, the arrest of the local governor in Khabarovsk, Furgal, back in 2019, one of the, the bigger protest stories actually came from Yekaterinburg. And there it was because of plans to build yet another church and a church to be built at the expense of pretty scarce public green space in the centre. And it, it really seemed to catalyse resentment at, at Rosbog and the massive construction programme, which many, with reason, believe is also a mechanism for transferring church and public money into the hands of embezzling clerics and their, their, their business allies. And in the process, it was also, I suspect, about a resistance to the idea that uh, decisions can be made about public space and other public goods by the, the great and the not so good. Um, without real attention to what ordinary Russians want. And this is, after all, a recurring theme. It was part of exactly the reason why Navalny was able to catalyse protests. So this was a sort of time in which actually the luxurious lifestyles of Kirill and his team, I mean, the Metropolitan himself was, uh, was at that time reportedly about to receive a, a lavish 38 million euro new smart home at Tsarskoye Sela outside uh, St. Petersburg, which was paid for by the Presidential Property Directorate. These sort of things hardly endeared themselves to the masses when, when times are hard, and in particular when there is pressure on the, I was going to say that, the, the, the stock of housing, but let's particularly say the stock of decent and modern housing. According to Kirill, after all, before the year of Covid, Every day, three new churches were being built in Russia. Now, okay, this, this, this may be a little bit sort of questionable. I suspect it also includes little things like, you know, small one-room chapels in larger buildings and things. But still, you know, three new churches every day. 
And yet the construction of housing and other infrastructure was still lagging and continues to lag well behind the plans that Putin had also announced in, in 2018. So, so no wonder this, this became an issue. Now, now to some, it, the protest demonstrated a rising tide of anti-clericalism. And look, it's certainly true that surveys have shown that there is continued genuine religiosity in Russian society, but there also is a slowly growing belief, even amongst the faithful, that the church should be separate from the state. And in Yekaterinburg, this new church seems to have been one onion dome too far. And local authorities, once it became clear that some you know, little bit of the usual bit of bluster and a few arrests you know, were not enough to actually end the protests, they began to back down. The Kremlin itself saw no particular reason to spend political capital on this case. Even Kirill started looking for escape routes, and eventually what happened was that the regional governor, Evgeny Kuivashev, used an opinion poll as a basis to, to justify suspending the, the programme, you know, as if they were shocked, shocked to discover that Yekaterinburgers didn't want to give up green space for another church. And that, I think, is quite interesting because it demonstrates the extent to which actually there is a certain fragility to, to Ross Bog's position. Not in terms of in, in, in the hearts and faiths of so many Russians, but in their capacity to be able to count on, on political weight. They are players, but they are not crucial players. And thus, Ross Bog is under greater pressure than ever. You know, some within the, the administration frankly, are simply hostile to the church and its increasingly social conservative agenda and actually have been pushing back against its efforts to shape cultural policy. You know, it goes with the grain of much of the sort of the, the Putin era. But let's be honest, there, there are also some very committed secularists and still some people who have socially liberal views right at the heart of the presidential administration. And then there are also those within the church itself, and certainly it's its very sprawling hierarchy, who have misgivings about its current trajectory. Quite interesting that, that Sergei Chapnin, former deputy editor of the Moscow Patriarchate's official journal, and often for, you know, for a long time trotted out as a spokesman for, shall we say, orthodox, orthodox views. Um, you know, he has very much criticised the church of late, especially the official stance on Ukraine, which he says basically pushed the Ukrainian church into secession. Uh, There's a nice little metaphor, arguably, there for the relationship between Ukraine and Russia. And also, he's very uh, critical about the, what he regards as a too close relationship with power. Not least because he says it actually constrains the church's capacity to actually pass moral judgment when moral judgment needs to be passed on what the state is doing. But perhaps the greatest danger for the church, though, is that by accepting this lucrative and comfortable role as Rosbog, it's also tied its fortunes very much to the state and subjected itself to the same practical political considerations as to any other political, administrative, economic block. Put bluntly, it now has to deliver, like any other political entrepreneurs within the adhocracy, and it can, can't claim any special privileged status. Nothing succeeds like success, but nothing hurts more than failure. And it was a straw in the wind that after the Ekaterinburg protests, new administration, sorry, local administrations in Krasnoyarsk and Chelyabinsk actually suspended plans to build new churches there, precisely because they feared the potential public backlash, and although the church was not happy with that, frankly there was nothing it could do. So since then, through 2020, 
Rosbog's management has been ever more assiduous in demonstrating its loyalty. Having been lukewarm initially, for example, on vaccination, at a, a nod from the Kremlin, or, or maybe that was more of a frown from the Kremlin, you know, it, it has switched into sort of assiduously reassuring them that there's no sin at all in, in taking the jab, and the thought that uh, you know human biomatter may have been used in in the, in the research, oh, that that's irrelevant. It's going to be interesting, particularly, to see how the church plays this autumn's elections. Reportedly, for example, Kirill has actually petitioned both presidential administration political impresario Sergei Kirienka and State Duma speaker Vyacheslav Valodin, who are on the whole rivals, it has to be said. But anyway, he's petitioned them both to try and ensure that three parliamentarians who are particularly close to the church's interests get re-elected. And it's really quite interesting, actually, to, to, to look at who these are. The first one, again, Apparently, this is not confirmed, but it's it's been reported. I mean, it started in in the Nizigar Telegram channel, but then actually has been subsequently re- reported elsewhere. You know, the first one is Pyotr Tolstoy from United Russia. I mean, no big surprise there. We're talking about Leo Tolstoy's great great grandson, vice speaker of the Duma, and a very frequent cheerleader for church initiatives, um, including. I mean, he was actually one of the sponsors of the infamous foreign agent laws. But then the second one is from the Liberal Democratic Party, Leonid Slutsky. Likewise, uh, a long-term ally, rather unsavoury chap. Um, Incidentally, Navalny dug out that in one year period from, I think it was June 2017, a Mercedes Maybach S500 that he owns, only one of his posh cars, he also happened to have two Bentleys. Anyway, this car broke the traffic laws 825 times in a roughly one-year period, accruing fines to the value of 1.4 million rubles, which is about 40% of his official income. But nonetheless, it doesn't seem to have put a crimp in his very, very, very comfortable lifestyle. So we got United Russia, we got Liberal Democrat Party, and number three, well, interestingly enough, it's a communist, Sergei Gavrilov. Again, though, I mean, communist for most deputies is more of a style choice rather than having any ideological meaning. I mean, the Communist Party, again, as I've talked about in the past, for most, especially at the higher end of the hierarchy, is really just another flavour of nostalgic nationalists than anything else. Um, And certainly um, Gavrilov, he's been a frequent collaborator on legislative initiatives of the church, so... Marx and Engels would be so proud. Three lovely, lovely lads. Patriots and moral beacons all. But none of this stake favour comes without a price, though. At a time of resource scarcity and heightened political competition, when the very future of the Putin regime is beginning, beginning to come under question, the invisible shareholders of Rosbog may be starting to wonder whether it's providing value for money. And this, of course, is going to drive the Rosbog management to up its game too. I don't believe that they can emancipate themselves from the state at the moment. In the current situation, there will be no partition of church and state. And therefore, instead, they will have to likewise accept that for this generation, they've made their choice and they're going to have to stick with it whatever may happen as Putinism moves into a more overtly authoritarian mode. 
We'll just have to see. So let's have a break now, and then I want to talk about how age comes to us all, but especially Siloviki. Just the usual reminder, you're listening to the In Moscow Shadows podcast. You can support it by going to patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows. And remember that patrons get a variety of additional perks, as well as knowing that they're supporting this peerless source on all things Russian. And you can also follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or on Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. Now, back to the show. I'm recording this podcast on Sunday the 23rd of May. A couple of days ago, it was Sergei Shoigu, Defence Minister Sergei Shoigu's 66th birthday. Happy birthday to him. But nonetheless, that seems to be a timely moment to look at a particular aspect of higher Russian politics that has been interesting me for a while. In March, the law on state civil service was amended. Doesn't sound like a particularly exciting thing. But one of the amendments makes it possible for those figures who are directly appointed by the Prime Minister, sorry, by the President, can stay beyond the usual mandated hard maximum age of 70. Pretty much for everyone else, 70 is the latest you can stay in office, then you have to be retired, unless you're an elected official. But no, if you are one of these particular figures, you can now stay on longer in exceptional circumstances and at the the president's will. I can't help but feel that this amendment really ought to be called the Patrushev Amendment, which incidentally also sounds as if it would make a pretty good thick airport paperback thriller. Patrushev Amendment. I can see that now with a cover with, I don't know, a a bullet and a rose or something. Anyway, because Nikolai Patrushev, the very powerful figure in Putin's circle, Secretary of the Security Council, is 69 at the moment. And at the end of this year, it will be his 70th birthday. And of all the figures, he seems to be the one who I imagine Putin will most want to hold on to, and also for whom there seems to be least preparation in terms of succession planning. But it speaks to a really quite interesting issue within the upper leadership. I've been looking at what we might think of as the key security and security adjacent positions within the system. So not just simply the obvious, you know, the sort of defence minister and the interior minister and so forth, but also, you know, the, the, the key ministers who are, who are going to be responsible for supporting and fueling military campaigns, the key figures in the presidential administration and the people who are going to push forward uh, legislation which is relevant and such like. And there is a really quite stark divide that appears. Let me just kind of run through some of the ages. I mean, Putin himself, it's worth noting as a benchmark, is, is 68. But again, as an elected figure, especially an elected figure who now can re- remain in office until the 2030s, he doesn't need to worry about that directly. P- Prime Minister Mishustin, 55. Former Prime Minister and now kind of Deputy Chair of the Security Council, but not really a, what we think of as a security insider, Dmitry Medvedev, also 55. But if one starts looking directly at the Siloviki, Patrushev is 69, Defence Minister Shoigu is 66, Chief of the General Staff Gerasimov, 65, Director of the Federal Security Service Bortnikov is 69, Director of the Foreign Intelligence Service Narishkin is 66, 
director of the investigatory committee, which is the sort of the, the main agency used to prosecute and persecute dissidents. Bastrykin, 67. Viktor Zolotov, head of the National Guard, they're the sort of in-house uh, leg breakers, also 67. But then when one starts looking at ministers, I mean, they range from the you know, little stripling of Maxim Roshetnikov, Minister of Economic Development, who's 41, uh, up to, you know, I'm trying to think, Belousov, first Deputy Prime Minister, 62. Presidential administration, I mean, the head, Anton Vino, I mean, he's 49. Deputy Head Kirienko, who I mentioned before, he's, he's 58. There is a clear distinction between those people who might be regarded as the core Silovic securocrats, who are essentially in their late 60s. The only exceptions are those who frankly have little political weight. They're figures like the Prosecutor General, Krasnov, who is 60, sorry, 45, and I mean the Interior Minister, Kolokoltsev, who is 60. They are, they are the outliers, but they're the outliers because, to be blunt, they don't matter. They, they, they are there just to do their job. They are, in short, technocrats. And generally speaking, the technocrats within this system are in their 50s or, le or even younger. Now, why, why might this be? Well, I think in part it's because very much the securocrats are of Putin's generation. Both they're people who you know, work with him or he knows, but also they're people who share those same crucial experiences. You know, they are the, the homo sovieticus generation who, you know, at a certain point in their lives and careers went through the collapse of the Soviet Union, um, haven't really been able to internalize or process that. So there is still this um, very visceral sense not just of what have we lost but who has taken it from us and how can we get it back unfortunately spoiler alert it ain't coming back but also putin himself not a man who trusts easily but also not a man who and i've mentioned this in in previous podcasts not a man who lets go of people easily you know if we think of for example foreign minister lavrov uh, who is again of the older generation i mean you know he's he's been trying for years to be allowed to retire and in part because there isn't an obvious uh, successor, um, you know, he, he's not been allowed to. Murov, head of the Federal Protection Service. I mean, again, this is a person who for five years petitioned Putin to be allowed to go between his 65th birthday and, and his 70th when he had to. You know, so Putin doesn't like letting these people go. So you have this, this aging Silovic cohort but the point is, precisely, what are you going to do as they get older? Maybe you hold on to Patrushev. Maybe you hold on to all the others. If you do that, it begins to look, first of all, as if you really are moving into a kind of Brezhnevian gerontocracy. Secondly, it raises questions about whether or not they really can, can do the job. And, and thirdly, it precisely looks like a, a massive um, vote of no confidence in, in the next generation. So, so this is an interesting challenge. And what I want to do is go through six figures, very briefly, don't worry. Um, this is, I know, security wonkery that for some will be of great fascination and others of, at best, mild interest. But I'll try and make it as interesting as possible. So let me just go through six, just again, raise some, some specific issues about the future. And if we talk about Patrushev, first of all. There's no real signs that he's on his way out. He still seems vigorous. He's still very active. His stock in the Kremlin and, and Putin's own circle is undiminished. 
And anyway, there would be this question of who would replace him. The obvious thing would have been that the man who succeeded him as head of the Federal Security Service, uh, Bortnikov, who is, let's be perfectly honest, essentially Patrushev's mini-me. Um, indistinguishable in most respects, except just less so. Less stature, less interesting, I would suspect less sharp. It's very hard to tell. The thing is that whereas Patrushev is 69, so too is Bortnikov. So, you know, that's not really going to work. So I was thinking, I was trying to think, well, okay, who who will be around? Because it has to be someone who, first of all, above all, Putin trusts. That narrows the field immediately. Secondly, it has to be someone who has a credible and authoritative voice on security matters. Because the Secretary of the Security Council is, in effect, the National Security Advisor. There isn't that system, form, that position formally within the, the, the Russian system, but that's essentially the role he plays. And he also has to be able to control an often very fractious and mutually cannibalistic security community. Sometimes this will be done by consensus building and sometimes it's by cracking heads together. And thinking about it, to me, I, there's only really one figure who seemed to be an obvious choice, and that would be Defence Minister Sergei Shoigu. So, if Patrushev had to go, I mean, there are others who could fit in. I mean, Narishkin, maybe, I'll come on to him in a moment. But certainly, you know, if you really wanted a true heavy-hitting figure with, with genuine authority across the security spectrum, and also who has Putin's trust, then Shoigu... Then, of course, that raises the question of who becomes Minister of Defence. Let me come on to the Ministry of Defence in a minute. So, Bortnikov. Well, as I said, Bortnikov's 69. Um, He's he's, going to be 70 later this year. Is he going to stay or is he going to go? It seemed pretty clear that he was going to be going. I mean, his uh, successor has pretty much been lined up. A man by the name of Sergei Karalyov, whom I profile in a previous podcast, and again, I'll provide a link to that in the programme notes, which is frankly quite worrying. Sergei Karalyov, there's considerable reason to suspect that he has links with corrupt, not just corrupt officials, ha, there's a surprise, um, but also organised crime. When he controlled the Economic Security Directorate of the FSB, this was really when it became you know, one of the, the dirtiest of the dirty within the Russian state apparatus. And particularly, it became a hub for raiding operations, these attempts to basically seize property through the use, abuse of state power. The problem with Karolyov is not just that he's a ruthless opportunist, but that he does seem to be a smart, ruthless opportunist. However, he has been slightly tainted by some recent scandals, so it might be that it's just too soon for him to step up. So we might have Bortnikov being kept around for a year or so just to provide that that period of transition. But essentially, I I think with the FSB, we, we have a pretty good sense that there's going to be change. Then there's two people that I want to actually put together, not least because they're both of exactly the same age, 67, which is to say uh, Bastrykin of the Investigatory Committee and Zolotov of the National Guard. Now, they're interesting, I mean, although they're they're very different in, in, in many aspects of character and background and so forth, they're very similar in terms of their ecological niche, shall we say, that they occupy. These are people who have almost no friends or allies within the system. 
These are people who both were really the founding directors of their institutions. These are people who made a lot of enemies in the process and continue to make enemies. And as a result, these are also people whose existence depends on their continued demonstration of their utility and loyalty to the boss. Um, they're, they're, they're not Putin's mates. They can't rely on that level of indulgence. They have been allowed to rise far and fast, but that is only insofar as they continue to be useful. And it's quite interesting that both of them at the moment have been putting in quite a bit of effort into making it clear that they personally are the, the embodiments of their services and are, are active in running them. I mentioned in a previous podcast, again, sorry, that seems to be my refrain today, um, about Bastrykin very much being pushed forward as a, taking personal charge of a whole variety of cases. And likewise, you know, Zolotov is, is, is very much hogging the limelight when it comes to National Guard-related issues. And maybe it's as a result of that that what's interesting is they all obviously have a whole variety of deputies, but they don't really have an obvious understudy or successor. I mean, if one looks at the investigatory committee, there are five deputies and one first deputy. And the first deputy, Eduard Kabernev, um, he seems fine. Uh, he, you know, he certainly ha- has a sort of a, a solid track record, particularly active working in the North Caucasus and such like. But he's not being given, shall we say, the kind of attention, the kind of time in the spotlight that would suggest that he's being groomed to, for replacement. Again, I think if you're Bastrykin or Zolotov, the last thing you want is for there to be a plausible replacement for you, ready and waiting in the wings. Because, of course, you want to present yourself as irreplaceable. Then Narishkin, whom I mentioned, um, Sergei Narishkin, head of the Foreign Intelligence Service, and not a man who, frankly, ever seemed to be particularly looking to, for that job and desperate to, to remain in that. I might as well lean into this. As I talked about in a previous podcast, um, he very much has been using his position to campaign on... Well, campaign raise, demonstrate an awareness, demonstrate an opinion on a whole variety of other issues outside the SVR's remit. And in part, he leverages his position as head of the Russian Historical Society um, to to this end. I mean, very recently, for example, he granted a frankly pretty softball interview to the BBC. Now, the reason you do these kinds of things is in part vanity, but also in part because you're trying to actually make a splash and you're trying to make it clear that you are more than just simply a, a spy master. I have a feeling that his response to his increasing age, and he's 66, is actually that he's looking for a sideways and maybe sideways and upwards switch into the legislatures. You know, he was previously Speaker of the State Duma. I'm wondering if he's noticing that uh, Valentina Matvienka, who's the Speaker of the Upper Chamber, the Federation Council, I mean, she's 72, she's been in office nine or ten years, and, you know, it may be from his point of view that actually that's his his next and non-age 70 capped birth that he's thinking of. We'll have to wait and see. The final name I want to look at is that of well, someone who's actually a, something of a stripling by, by these ages, and he's only 66, and that is, sorry, 65 rather, um, and that is that he is uh, Chief of the General Staff, 
Valery Gerasimov. Now, at, at 65, obviously, he, he's nowhere near compulsory retirement. But nonetheless, it's interesting, he has been in office for longer than, well, both of his most recent two predecessors put together. He is the longest-serving chief of the general staff since 1991 and since post-Soviet Russia. And whereas back in um, 2019, I think it was, there was suggestions that he might be looking to retire, and that was very, very heavily stepped on. There was even sort of calls for prosecution for the people spreading the rumour. Well, We've seen them cropping up again, and this time there isn't anything like the same sort of backlash. And there's a few other little straws in the wind. Uh, He's just been elected chair of the Academy of Military Sciences. Now, mythical Gerasimov doctrines notwithstanding, this is not a man who's really shown himself having a great interest in leading-edge military thinking or history. Instead, it's the kind of job which would fit the profile of the sort of sinecures that a retired chief of the general staff picks up. Also, one of the potential front runners to replace him, Colonel General Andrei Kartopolov, has just recently announced that he will be standing for the Duma for Parliament in this autumn's elections. And of course, if he's elected then he will have to give up his his military position. Now, spoiler alert, he'll be standing for United Russia. I think, uh, you know, a highly decorated general. United Russia is going to make sure that he actually gets that that mandate. So he's going. Now, why I I raise this is because, precisely as I said, he seemed to be one of the two key front runners. I wonder if, let's say, it had been made clear to him that a decision has been made on who's going to succeed Gerasimov and that it's not him, this provides him with a sort of face-saving way out. So he doesn't have to serve under his, his rival. Instead, you know, he, he didn't lose the contest. He just went, went in another direction, which would suggest that, and again, nothing is decided, nothing is certain, um, but nonetheless, uh, Colonel General Sergei Surovikin, currently head of the Aerospace Forces, is probably, again, the front-runner to succeed him. Surovikin, I mean, although he now wears Aerospace Force blues, his background is as an army officer, and all the chiefs of the general staff have come from the ground forces, the army. He's also done his time in the general staff apparatus. He's headed forces in Syria not once but twice. Got a hero of the Soviet Union... Uh, sorry, <laughs> Freudian slip. Hero of the Russian Federation star. He, he ticks all the necessary boxes. And he's actually quite, quite a thoughtful advocate for new model styles of warfare that combine the vertical coordination of ground and air along with electronic warfare and drone warfare and all that kind of thing. Now, the reason I mention this is because, again, it it raises the question, is it that, in fact, they would want to avoid both Shoigu and Gerasimov, the defence minister and the chief of the general staff, going at the same time? Or, alternatively, it's not unusual for a new defence minister to want to have his, and I think we can fairly safely say it would be his, not her, choice of chief of the general staff, that you don't necessarily want to have someone who has been in place for so long that they have a considerable degree of weight and authority amongst the military themselves. You want someone who absolutely is going to be beholden to you. I don't know. But 
here's here's the big question. The point is that we, we see some people you know might be trying to hold on, others where they de- they definitely seem to be sort of exit strategies in place. But one way or the other, it means that in the next few years, a few years, I think it's fair to say, are going to be ones in which stability is going to be at, not just at a premium, but also probably the primary goal of the Kremlin, is actually going to see a, potentially a whole reshuffle of the top echelons of the security apparatus. And remember, reshuffles tend to also bring with them all kinds of other dislocations, people bringing their favourites in, new blood wanting to demonstrate their, their strength and their machismo, often by picking fights with rival organisations. Um, you know, so all of this can be happening at a time when, anyway, we're likely to see pressures on the system. Or, alternatively, a decision will be made precisely to avoid that. And, as with so many other aspects of, of Putin policy, kick that can resolutely as far down the road as you possibly can, despite the fact that actually these individuals will begin to become more out of touch with both their agencies and the situation on the ground and that the next generation will become increasingly dissatisfied with what's going on. So I think this this is going to be something to watch. This generational issue within the Siloviki is not just something for the, the spook and thug and soldier watchers like myself to be considering. It really is something that's going to have much, much, or potentially, I should say, something that has much, much wider consequences. Because what we've seen is actually the individuals do matter. The individuals do matter in the sense of having a place placing a stamp upon their own institutions. They matter in the sense of how much they're able to bring their institutional perspectives to the fore. I mean, Kolokol said the interior minister is not um, a wholehearted, let's uh, repress the hell out of the protesters on the streets kind of cop. He's actually the kind of cop who re- appreciates that, in fact, having a high level of public legitimacy really helps the police do their job. But the point is, he does not have the voice to be able to outshout the Zolotovs, the Patrushevs, the Bortnikovs, the Bastrykins in the system. So that's another way in which actually individual influences policy. And more broadly, this is a highly personalised system, not just in terms of the relationships between Putin and everyone else, but also laterally. Their interactions, their capacity to form consensuses are going to be absolutely crucial. They're going to be crucial while Putin is in power and even more important if and when Putin leaves power. So this is why this issue of succession really matters. But now I shall clamber down from that particular soapbox and let you get on with the rest of your day. Thank you very much indeed for listening. Well, that's the end of another episode of the In Moscow Shadow podcast. Just as a reminder, beyond this, you can follow my blog, also called In Moscow Shadows. Follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. This podcast is made possible by generous and enlightened patrons, and you too can be one. Just go along to my Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash In Moscow Shadows, and decide which tier you want to join, getting access to exclusive materials and other perks. However, whether or not you contribute, thank you very much indeed for listening. Until next time, keep well.